Now, ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, it is my honour and pleasure to introduce the Canadian Club of Toronto's 2013 Lifetime Award recipient. Parliamentarian, ambassador, business leader, chancellor, mental health champion. These titles and many more all reside in the, in the person of the Honourable Michael Wilson, a truly distinguished Canadian. In every aspect of his illustrious career, Mr. Wilson has always made a difference. He served in the House of Commons with distinction from 1979 until 1993. He managed the country's coffers judiciously as the finance minister and promoted our strengths as Minister of Industry, Science and Technology and Minister of International Trade. He strengthened Canada's relationship with the United States when he served as ambassador from 2006 to 2009. He is now the chairman of Barclays Capital Canada, Inc., and is currently responsible for managing their client relationships across this country. Other corporate roles have included chairman of UBS, UBS Canada and the vice chairman of RBC Dominion Securities. Mr. Wilson has been active in a number of professional and community organizations, including Brain Canada and the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. He is currently the Chancellor of the University of Toronto and chairs the Governing Council of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. So if I ever feel tired, I will just think about all of this. <laughs> His lifelong commitment to service has been rightly recognized and celebrate, celebrated many times over. He is a Companion of the Order of Canada and holds several, several honorary degrees, including from the University of Toronto and from the Royal Military College of Canada. And I would be remiss if I did not mention something I learned just about an hour ago, which, that, which is that his father was the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto in 1960. So that makes this all the more special. Mr. Wilson, we're delighted to have you, and we are also very delighted that you have kindly agreed to take questions from the audience. So to everyone sitting out there, this is your warning, that you'll have to think this man has been in question period, he's been in the House of Commons. So this is a warning to uh, come up with some good questions for him when he is finished. Um, before uh, our formal remarks begin, however, I would like to call Danny Asaf, Chair of the 2013 Lifetime Achievement Award Committee, to introduce the award. Danny. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you very much for joining us on this very special day. Uh, at the Canadian Club, I had the pleasure this year of being the chair of the committee uh, to select the 2013 recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award. And as you can imagine, such a great club with an illustrious history and a great network, we had a substantial and significant amount of names that were submitted to our committee to consider for the recipient of this award in 2013. It, was a, it is a pleasure today to be here to award it to uh, Mr. Wilson because as we went through the names and we deliberated who should win this award, there were two things that struck us about his nomination and his contribution. And that, as Allison has alluded to, are his characteristics of leadership in terms of the true essence of leadership, which is to take people from a place that they know to a place that is unfamiliar and be right and add value. And whether that was in the GST, free trade agreement, 
that has been, and in charitable works such as his contribution to mental health, he has truly shown leadership. And the second aspect was, did this person touch multiple components or parts of our lives? And when you look at Mr. Wilson's track record and what he has achieved, he has reached the pinnacles of success in politics, in business, and in the social charitable components of our society. It makes you wonder that maybe if he had captained the Toronto Maple Leafs, he would have even brought the Stanley Cup <laughs> back home where it belongs. <laughs> on that note, I would like to invite the Honourable Michael Wilson to join me on stage with uh, President Alison Lote to have the pleasure of awarding him this Lifetime Achievement for 2013 on behalf of the Canadian Club and all of you. Thank you very much. and Danny, thank you very much for uh, your kind words of introduction and uh, for this great honor. It's um, something that is very important to me. As, um, as Allison said, I have had a long association with the Canadian Club, starting with my father. He was president for a couple of years in 1960-61. I was a director for uh, a number of years myself, and during my public life I made a number of speeches uh, with the generous um, invitations from the Canadian Club uh, to be here. So all of this uh, makes this award very meaningful to me. Now it's uh, fortunate in a way that my father is not here today. He would often come to my speeches, he would sit in the front row, and after a few minutes, he would typically slump forward, put his head on his hands, as if to say, is this ever going to end? So clearly, my father was not blown away by my obvious charisma. But it's, um, I'm sure that he would be very proud if he were here today. But it's also great to see so many good friends, my friends from RBC, who I worked with uh, for a number of years, people from uh, CAMH, Catherine Zahn, golf buddies, uh, people who served with me and worked with me uh, in the House of Commons uh, government. So uh, I thank you all very much for being here today and uh, being part of this uh, celebration. I. I've thought a lot about what I would talk about today, and what I thought I'd do is point to uh, a few events in my life and events that had significant meaning to me and make some comments of conclusion after that. Now, February the 18th, 1980, was a real downer for me. We lost the government after eight months. And now I was facing more than four years in opposition. People asked me, how would I be able to endure that? 
particularly having felt the excitement of being a minister in the Clark government and having left a very interesting career in the investment business. And to top it off, MP's pay at that time was $38,000, and we had three young children. But I soon learned that this change in my life was nothing to be feared. It would be a significant and helpful learning experience. Joe Clark very generously offered me positions in industry and uh, energy and in finance. And this is followed by, I'll say it myself, a rather bold run for the leadership of our party, after which our new leader, Brian Mulroney, put me in charge of developing our economic policies, hopefully for forming the government uh, a few years later. This sequence, so working closely with caucus, caucus colleagues and friends in the private sector, knowledgeable in these areas, became an essential ingredient in the economic and financial policies which we took into government following that 1984 election. The entire process in opposition became an enormous help to me as I sat down in September of 1984 with my new colleagues, senior officials, in the Department of Finance. And together we produced what we called the Agenda for Economic Renewal or the Agenda Paper. And the Agenda Paper set out a framework of the economic policy that we would follow in government. The paper itself included a number of specific proposals, while the strategic framework provided the guiding backdrop for these and other policies that we would later adopt. This then was an integrated economic strategy, not something that was picked off the wall here and there, but that instituted many changes that would transform the makeup of the Canadian economy. So out of the ashes of that very bad day, I had a great learning experience about the economic makeup of the country, about the huge diversity of our people and their aspirations, about how government and politics work, and about the role of government and that balance of power between the federal government and the provinces. And I brought some of this understanding from my experience in the private sector, particularly from Dominion Securities, having dealt with financial issues in a variety of industries. But these four years in opposition added a much broader awareness of the complexity of the country. Not least was seeing this through the eyes of uh, my new parliamentary colleagues who brought tremendous depth of experience, some of them having been elected as far back as 1968. Now most of you here probably think of the Mulroney government economic achievements essentially as the free trade agreement, NAFTA, and the uh, goods and services tax. But the agenda paper was much broader than that. It covered a wide range of policies, including deficit reduction and a number of structural or regulatory policies that were designed to improve the performance of the Canadian economy. Now, this isn't the place to go through each of those and give you uh, an explanation of each. But there were many changes. These were important changes in the Mulroney government, and it truly was a government of change. Let me mention just a few areas. Foreign investment, energy policy around the time of the National Energy Program, privatization, banking and insurance regulation, which has served us well in this last crisis, income tax simplification, pension reform, 
and inflation targeting. Now, we enjoy the benefits of all of these policies to this day. And most of you have probably forgotten this, so let me remind you that we brought the deficit down, Stanley Hart will remember this, to about 3.5% of GDP from the 8.6% that we adopted in 1984, only to see that record destroyed by the recession that we ran into in the early 1990s. Now, I'm happy to elaborate on any of these uh, <laughs> if you wish in the Q&A period. But the lesson that I learned through all of this was the importance of consultation in the private se- with the private sector. This was strongly supported by Brian Mulroney and practiced by many of us. This, for me, began in opposition. As I, as I said, I had f- three fairly complex areas, and I needed more help than I was likely to be able to receive from the PC research folks. I needed to understand the, uh, the content and the impact of government policy on those affected, particularly those in the private sector. So I progressively built out my own informal research teams with interested and knowledgeable friends in a range of sectors, and that carried through my whole time in government. These networks were very helpful to me. But the more formal advisory groups that we've, we built in the free trade negotiation, the sectoral advisor groups, as well as the International Trade Advisory Committee, were particularly uh, uh, productive for us. And I want to just illustrate that with a couple of little stories here. I remember asking one CEO of a large Canadian company how the FTO would affect him. And he said that it would eventually destroy about a third of his business. And I was surprised and asked, well, how could he support the free trade agreement? He said that to succeed in the remaining businesses, he needed assured and tariff-free access to the United States. And without the FDA, any future investments he felt would have to be done in the big market in the United States. But with it, he had an important freedom of choice as to where those investment dollars would be located, and as it turned out, a large amount of that was invested in Canada. Now, on another occasion, a small businessman was concerned about the impact of the FDA on his little business. So I said to him, I said, where are your competitors? And he said, in Buffalo. I said, are they any better than you? And he said, no damn way are they better than me. And I said, well, now you've got the freedom to go ahead, face them head to head, and grow your business substantially in a great big market. And he, a great big smile came on his face, and he said, you're right, I can do that. So these two anecdotes, and many like them, that we heard through this consultative process throughout the negotiation, told us that we would be a winner in the freer and more open environment that the FDA would provide, and that has certainly proven to be the case. Now, another lesson here was the importance of teamwork. Brian Mulroney was a great source of leadership in providing the strategic direction for our policies, as well as the political oversight needed to manage the implementation of our agenda in the most effective way. But other key players, which I cannot forget, Don Mazankowski, Harvey Andre, Pat Carney, Barbara McDougall, Tom Hawken, were a number who I worked very closely with. And the complexity of government requires this element of teamwork and the involvement of the private sector in ensuring that those policies are workable. 
Now let me pause for a minute here to discuss the importance of senior officials. They must be true partners in government. Naturally, there will be tensions between the elected and the non-elected participants, but the public service officials can work well with both liberal and conservative governments. They understand the political differences, and they're quite sensitive to the political implications of their advice. Now, there are always ministers and occasionally a prime minister who would develop a measure of mistrust of some in the senior public service. This is human nature, since the new government has just taken over from another government and the same public servants are still in place. But in my experience, it's a big mistake to automatically assume that the public service cannot adapt to and support the policy directions of the government in office. They're professionals. They're driven by their dedication to good public policy. And I encountered very little difficulty in working with them in a climate of trust over the 10 years that I was a minister. Now, I would say that a minister that doesn't build this level of trust can run into significant difficulties in short order. The second and most serious, very bad day in my life was April the 25th, 1995, when our son Cameron, suffering from clinical depression, took his own life. This was a terrible shock to all of us in our family. But I saw this through another lens. I had been working with mental illness with the Clark Institute of Psychiatry, and I had some understanding of the burden of stigma, which I am sure contributed largely to Cameron's death. I awoke at 3 o'clock in the morning after his death and decided that I would speak at his funeral, principally about the cause of his death and the impact of stigma surrounding mental illness. The church was jammed. People who attended the service would come up to me in the following days and weeks and very confidentially, looking both ways, tell me their own story of their father, their mother, their sister or brother, their son or daughter, and in many cases, for the first time, would open up about the burden that they were carrying. This led to invitations to make speeches and a real reinforcement of the decision that I had taken to broaden the awareness of mental illness and the terrible scourge of stigma. I soon realized that this was a moment waiting to happen. So many people around us have some experience with mental illness, and so few had felt comfortable about sharing that burden with others. Being able to do that with someone who had a similar experience gave encouragement to them to be more open. But so much has changed since then. The Clark Institute has joined with three other mental health and addiction organizations to become the Center for Addiction and Mental Health one of the largest of its kind in North America. Research into mental illness has expanded significantly and produced great advances. Psychiatric genetic, genetics, epigenetics, and brain imaging are paving the way to new discoveries about brain chemistry and circuitry. CAMH scientists in personalized medicine are identifying markers and developing tests to predict 
a patient's response to medication in order to improve treatment and prevent side effects. And the development of non-invasive brain stimulation is making a significant impact in treatment-resistant depression. Now consider the attitude towards mental illness today. In the early days, the Clark Institute had trouble raising money and attracting people to serve on their board. People did not want to associate themselves with mental illness for, for fear that people would ask why. Why were they devoting their time and their money? At, and then they might be forced to talk about their father, their mother, or other members of their family. CAMH recently completed the most successful fundraising effort in North America and probably in the world for a hospital solely devoted to mental illness and addiction by raising $108 million. More broadly, More broadly, Bell Canada has committed $50 million to mental illness over a five-year period, and Mary, thank you for all you've done in that. The Campbell family. The Campbell family has made the most generous personal donation to mental illness with a landmark donation of $30 million to create the Campbell Research Institute at CAMH. Many recognizable, many recognizable names serve on the board of CAMH. And for the first time, beginning with the McCain family, which was another landmark donation for us, donors have associated themselves through naming opportunities of many of the new buildings and facilities at CAMH. Bell Canada has trained all of their managerial staff in how to recognize mental illness and addiction in their workplace and how to support those who are suffering. So the future is hopeful. Today we have dismissed the pessimism of years past and moved to a recovery-based system of care where patients are supported to live their best lives, engaging fully in life and work. Workplaces are becoming more open to dialogue around mental illness and implementing supports so that employees can thrive. Research advantages are well, advances are well on their way. Today's scientists are, are investigating those who are at high risk of developing serious mental illness. So you can imagine a day when we can prevent a young person from developing a psychotic illness altogether. New discoveries, improved treatment, and supports and more awareness are leading us to a future where no one will believe that life is not worth living. So we've come a long way in the past 15 years. However, there are still many who would hesitate in talking about their own mental illness or that of a family member because of their fear of stigma. So the more we talk about it, the better. And that is the significance of the Bell Canada Let's Talk campaign and the frequent discussions of mental illness on radio shows like the CBC Morning Show. Now let me pause for a minute and make an observation. 
February the 18th, 1980, and April 25th, 1995, were the two worst days of my life. However, out of diversity comes opportunity. The experiences that have flowed from those two dreadful days have led to the two most important achievements in my career. And that is the marvelous thing about human nature. I think we can all point to comparable instances with ourselves or people that we know. It's something that we should never forget. Yes, we have to get through the disappointments in life. But more important is how we move forward in a positive way to take advantage of the lessons and opportunities that develop from those disappointments. The other lesson that I want to comment on today is the importance of freedom. We in Canada are very fortunate in that we have a great deal of freedom and for the most part have not suffered great adversity in achieving that freedom. Too often we take our own freedom for granted. Now I do not deny in any way the great cost of freedom for many people and their families who fought in two world wars and subsequently in other wars to defend the freedom of others and potentially our own. But I benefited greatly through my association with Canadians who came to Canada from countries behind the Iron Curtain. I worked closely with an organization called the Seven Captive Nations, which was an organization founded by Canadians who emigrated from Ukraine, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And by chance, I was asked to make a speech to them shortly after I won the nomination in 1978. That speech launched me on a wonderful relationship that lasted through my political career and beyond. In particular, these Canadians valued highly their freedom in Canada and wished to ensure that their members of Parliament understood the strength of their feeling. This was a principal focus of this speech, and many spoke to me after, commenting very positively on my position as a potential member of Parliament, feeling so strongly about freedom. This did surprise me, but made, made me realize the great importance of freedom to them. They had come to Canada mostly after the Second World War, fleeing Soviet dictatorship. And after they left their homeland, they yearned for the day that they could return when it was a free country. And that was the content of many speeches thereafter. And it also was the lead up to a momentous trip that I took in late August 1991. The Berlin, the Berlin Wall had come down. The three Baltic states declared their independence. And because of my close association with members of the Baltic community in Canada, Prime Minister Mulroney asked me to personally deliver to the new governments a letter signed by him recognizing their independence. I accepted this request with enthusiasm and invited three representatives from each country to join me to share in this celebration. We met with the new political leaders and some important memories. The receptionist desk of the Lithuanian president's office was still protected by sandbags. There were still rogue Soviet soldiers roaming around. 
Shortly after that, we visited the grave of about a dozen young people in their late teens who had been killed by Soviet soldiers just two weeks before. Their crime? Demonstrating for their own freedom. The Vice President of Latvia, our host, told me that his name was at the top of a list found the previous weekend in a Soviet safe house. Not surprisingly, we had a very prominent, very uh, large group of, uh, very, a group of very large uh, soldiers uh, providing security throughout our visit there. And boulders about six or seven feet in diameter protected the entrance of the Estonian parliament, the beacon of freedom of their country. Now, in that same week, two days later, I became the first Western political leader to visit with President Gorbachev and President Yeltsin on the very day that legislation was passed to create the former Soviet Union, giving those Soviet Union countries their freedom. Now, this was a fantastic week, and I wanted to share my experience with friends back home. So I called one of my friends in the seven captive nations communities and asked her if she could put together a group on my return the following Sunday, two days later, so I could report on these experiences and illustrate them with some pictures that had been taken. Now, on my return, she told me that she had a full house. She had to limit the crowd. In little more than those two days, she was able to fill the, Herb the Hilton Harbor Castle ballroom, 1,600 people from those communities. And what an example of the significance of freedom to them. For me, it was an electrifying experience as I stood before them and described the newfound freedom that I saw in these three little countries that had been tormented by Soviet occupation for so many years. Now, I focused on these three prominent aspects of my life, but what brings them all together? And let me suggest to you the importance of freedom, political freedom, the, important, the opportunity to live in a free country not governed by an oppressive leadership is something that we, cannot, we can relate to, but not in the same way as my friends from the Seven Captive Nations group, who had directly suffered from this experience and understood personally the importance of the new freedom coming to their homelands. We are fortunate that in Canada we do live in a free country. Having the right to complain openly about our leaders and their policies and then vote for a change if we wish it. And yet few people in the world enjoy that freedom and we've seen recently many people are willing to fight for it. But the incursions on freedom can be very subtle. We must recognize these and be willing to resist them when we identify instances of this in our own country. We rarely consider government policy in the context of the impact on the freedom of those affected by these policies. We must respect the authority of government, no question of that, and the desire that it has to meet the will of the people. But government can be more sensitive to how these actions can limit the freedom of choice of those affected. Let me elaborate on that. We don't often think of running deficits as an action which impinges upon our freedom. But the existence of a deficit limits the freedom of government 
from directing limited resources to other worthy causes, or as deficits through the buildup of debt, li limiting the freedom of choice of future generations. Too often, the political driver for a particular policy overwhelms any consideration of the alternative of leaving those resources for taxpayers to spend as they choose. But this is a topic more of a book than of a speech. So let me return to my second topic. Consider the person who is touched by mental illness and does not feel free to talk openly about it. That is wrong. It's very damaging to that person, but damaging even more broadly to our society. And in a different way, the freedom, the freedom was a fundamental attraction of my close involvement with my friends who were so directly concerned with the freedom of their homelands. So the desire for freedom in its many forms is a powerful ingredient in much of what we do and has had a powerful impact on my life. Thank you all very much for being here today. Thank you, everybody, and thank you so very much for those remarks. I just tell a little Canadian Club story? Oh, there's a Canadian Club story. Canadian Club story was, uh, I think it was the first speech I made to the Canadian Club. It wasn't a great speech, and at the end of the speech, I was uh, sitting at the head table, and I noticed there was a standing ovation starting at the back of the room, and normally it starts at the front of the room, and I, that's unusual. So I asked later uh, what was going on out there. And uh, this friend of mine said, oh, didn't you see what Dave Walker was doing? He was a senator. He was also a very good friend of my father's. He said, Dave Walker was going around elbowing people in the ribs saying, stand up, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm going to let that one go. <laughs> um, thank you very much for those remarks and for um, being willing to take a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, we have a couple rules at the Canadian Club, not many, a couple. Uh, one of them is this, if you would please introduce yourself before asking your question. And the second is to remember to phrase your remarks in the form of a question. Thank you. And we'll start at the back. Thank you, Flora. Hi. My name is Shada Majid, and I'm from Ladrefran Public School. We can do. And my question is, did you go into finance because of your father? Did you? Did I go into finance because? Because of my, your father was a president of the Canadian Club. Uh, there are a lot of things that led me into finance. Uh, my studies at the University of Toronto, but uh, clearly sitting at the dinner table with my father, who was a financial executive, and listening to him talk, and occasionally he'd take me down to his office, and we talk about things down there. So that clearly was uh, a, uh, a prominent factor, but it was simply I loved doing what uh, what I saw people doing there. I had a couple of jobs in the summer which helped me along the way. But it gets right back to the basic uh, 
point, which I direct right at the students. Um, uh, it was something I loved to do, and if you love to do something, do it. Don't do something just because someone else is doing it or someone tells you that you should do it. You've got to enjoy it yourself, and if you enjoy what you're doing, you'll do well at it. Thank you. And I also forgot to say, if you would like a, uh, to ask a question, to raise your hand and somebody will come around with the mic. Sorry, thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Sherilyn Olive Gomes, and I'm the vice principal from St. Bonaventure Catholic Elementary School. I'm very pleased to be here. And back to the question, sir. What would be one message to our students all over the world, and especially in our uh, city, Toronto, where they can help to uh, pave the way to build uh, inclusive classrooms, you know, where they can be more accepting to their peer group students who are suffering with some kind of mental health problems. Give us a few points so that they can take this back and share it with their peers in their classroom and schools. I, I didn't get the whole question. The question was about what can be done to make more inclusive classrooms okay. um, and to help students who may be suffering from mental health challenges. I think the, the basic uh, challenge that we have is identifying mental illness or addiction issues at an earlier stage in life. And what we've found that there are a lot of signs that sometimes we think are just signs of growing up difficulties in growing up and adjusting to new circumstances, things like that, uh, when in fact there, is, there are early signs of mental illness. And 70% of Canadians who later develop a more serious mental illness realize that the first signs were there before they were 18 years old. So I think what students, what schools can do is look out for some of the, uh, the, their students who are having difficulty, but also the students themselves, if they hear that one of their students, one of their buddies is having a problem, that they try and get that person uh, to see the school nurse, whatever, uh, whatever opportunity there is to get uh, specific care. Uh, and the more we do that, and that becomes important as we move into university, uh, the, uh, President Naylor will tell you, because you move into much larger classrooms. So it's much harder there to identify, for the faculty uh, to identify a problem, whereas the high school or primary school classes are a good deal smaller. So it's, uh, it's something that uh, we try, if we can find out when there's a difficult problem, the, early, the, early the earliest that we can get to it, the better because early detection leads to early treatment, leads to uh, uh, early uh, resolution of the problem, same as any illness. Thank you. And may I ask the final question? Okay. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you, Patty, for that support. <laughs> um, I appreciated, uh, and I'm sure we all did, your, your honesty in discussing the two worst days of your life. Um, and I'm wondering if you can just tell us about one of the fondest days of your life, be it uh, in public life or other, otherwise. My wife isn't here. 
but I, I have to say that that was the happiest day of my life when we got married. Here, here. Thank so, you. Susie. I have uh, two. My sister is here, and Susie Scase, who is a good friend of my wife's, uh, Margie's, I'm sure will tell her that I said this. Oh, Mr. Wilson, thank you very, very much, and I'll invite my colleague Susan MacArthur to the podium to thank you formally. Thank you. So good afternoon, my name is Susan MacArthur and I'm managing partner of Green Soil and a director of the Canadian Club. Mr. Wilson, Ambassador Wilson, Minister of Finance Wilson, Chancellor Wilson, these are all very important roles that you've played and probably most importantly as a father. And this really demonstrates why you are one of Canada's most distinguished and cherished citizens. Public service is so important to this country. We need a thousand more Michael Wilsons out there doing the work that you've done. We have a great country and it's so important. You've been a nation builder, a community builder, a university builder, and a hospital builder. And you've led with such incredible grace, charisma, passion, compassion, and a quality that I actually quite love, which is your endearing sense of humor. So thank you so much for being here with us today and accepting this award, this award. And really, you do embody what we think of when we think of our Lifetime Achievement Award. Thank you. Thank you very much, Susan, and, and uh, thank you again, Mr. Wilson, for being with us today. Um, I also want to thank you personally for having the courage to shine a light in areas that well, we may not pay attention to as much as we should, and for using that opportunity to remind us all of our, of our collective humanity. Thank you very, very much for being here uh, and for joining us today. Um, I would also like to thank uh, the sponsors who made today possible. RBC, thank you very much for your support and to both Bell Talks and to Bell Let's Talk, I'm sorry, and to Blair Franklin, thank you so much for enabling our students to participate with us today. Thank you all. Now this concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. Uh, we at the Canadian Club are very grateful to Rogers and to 680 News for their continuing coverage of Canadian Club events. You can learn more about the club anytime by visiting us at canadianclub.org. Thank you again to everyone here, to Mr. Wilson, congratulations, and thank you for your service. Have a wonderful afternoon, and this meeting is adjourned.